So I'm going to read from Matthew 5, 1 through 16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do the people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come this morning, May our ears be anointed to hear, our eyes see, our hearts and our minds know what you set before us. And may we be reminded that you are present here today with us, whether we are in joy or whether we are in sorrow, health, or in some level of infirmity, you are here and you invite us into your very presence. So God, may we be reminded of that this day and to celebrate that through Jesus. Amen. As Josh said, we're taking a, a very brief break in our Luke study right now. There's a lot going on in our world, a lot going on around us that's presenting us with questions. It's perhaps presenting us with viewpoints, with discussion topics, it's pushing us to take positions, perhaps even creating a level of anxiety or, or concern. And I've even heard conversations about end times. I've even heard those kinds of conversations here lately. With wars in Europe between Ukraine and Russia, Abrajan and Armenia, 
threats around the world in, in the Middle East, war between Israel and Hamas, civil war in Syria, civil war in Yemen, civil war all over the place. Not only do you have the physical wars going on, but you have the threat of wars. And you have the wars of words. You have Arab against Israeli. You have Sunni against Shia. You have nationalist against immigrants and refugees. You have Republicans against Democrats. You see, even here in our United States, we, over the last few weeks, have witnessed chaos in our government as, as one party started to come apart at the seams while the other party kind of celebrated that chaos overlooking the chaos in their own party. One side can't even talk to its own people, let alone those across the aisle who might think differently or, God forbid, even look different. And this has created a political chaos. But if we're honest, this chaos also exists within the church. We have wars of words as Catholic against Protestant, as Protestant against Protestant. Traditional worship versus contemporary worship. Arminian versus Reformed versus liberation theology. With this theologian tearing down that theologian all in the name of truth. We have complementarian versus egalitarian. Back and forth. All seeking to prove that they're right. You see, in, in the past 50 years... Issues and disagreements that we used to have discussions about have now become values that we must defend. Values that need to be defended at all cost. In it, it's a culture of I'm right and you're wrong. And it's taken root in so many places in our society, in our culture, and even in our churches, in sanctuaries, in elder meetings, in, in, in committee meetings, in vestries, and in presbyteries. You want to look back a little bit in the history, and you can see this idea of framing issues and discussions into values that now must be defended takes place in the 1970s and the emergence of the religious right. Sky Gestani, uh is a scholar, a pastor, a author and a senior editor at Christianity Today. Sky wrote this a while ago. He said, we must go back to 1976 when Newsweek famously declared this is the year of the evangelical. After 50 years on the edge of culture, the social upheaval of the 1960s and the legalizing of abortion in 1972 brought evangelicals out of the shadows. They feared the country had taken a rapid turn away from Judeo-Christian values and intervention was necessary. That year, the seeds were planted for the emergence of the religious right and the alignment of values voters to the Republican Party. In 1976 was the same year Harvey Milk was appointed to the San Francisco City Council. Milk was the first openly gay political official in the country. 
Now, the tension between gay rights and religious liberty is only one example of how issues got turned into values, got turned into wars. And from, from that emerged this idea that I'm right and you're wrong, and that my values are better than your values. Jasthani goes on in that same essay. He says, society will either be shaped by traditional Christian values or by progressive secular ones. There can be no middle ground. The conflict is framed as a zero-sum game. One group will win, and the other must retreat to the periphery of society from which it emerged. If you're unfamiliar with that terminology, zero-sum game, it means for every person that wins, somebody has to lose an equal amount so that the total equals zero. And this framing has moved it into this idea of a zero-sum game. As a result, I'm right, you're wrong, has taken a deeper root in so many of our places in life, and it's been encapsulated in the church again and again. Now, Jasthani concluded that essay with this phrase, quote, for the church, this framing has been costly. According to Gallup, in 1970, 66% of Americans said they had a strong or high confidence in the church. Today, it is only 44%. Now, lest you think that doesn't sound a lot, Jasthani wrote this article 12 years ago, and he used Gallup's 2010, July 2010 statistics. July 2023, Gallup reissued the exact same survey. Now it's less than 33% have a strong view of the church having any effect. Isn't that interesting? Folks, we're going in the wrong direction. We are literally going in the wrong direction. David Campbell, he's a political scientist at um, Notre Dame. And he says this of the most recent report, quote, the data points to a rich irony about the emergence of the religious right. Its founders intended to bolster religion's view in the public square. In a sense, they have succeeded. Yet at the same time, the movement has pushed a growing share of the population to opt out of religion altogether. The reframing of issues into values and it becoming fights is not turning out the way we thought it might. The problem is we have lost the ability to talk. We've lost the ability to engage and challenge one another, even to disagree with one another without judgment being the center of that discussion. We have lost our ability, our issues, and discussions have turned into values that now become life-or-death fights. And as a result, we in the church have often fallen into that, the trap of the need to be right at all cost. Caring for the lost, the homeless, the forgotten, the poor, those in desperation— let alone those living on our right and our left and in front of us and behind us, those take a back seat to making sure that you understand our theology, that you understand our theology is correct, 
and that you understand that we're really the only ones around here proclaiming the, the full counsel of God. I want to ask, how well have we done with that? How well have we done with being able to identify the truth and live out as a church? I've said this before. I think the fact that we have over 47,500 Christian denominations in the world today probably says we're not doing a great job of being able to narrow in on what the truth is. You see, most of these denominations have been founded because people left what they deemed as some form of heresy and have founded what they deem as the truth, the full truth, the only truth. We have it, and you don't. You see, I think part of the trap that we fall into is we think that the church needs to look alike. We, we think that the church needs to believe the same thing, that we need to believe the right things are things. But I want to suggest that if, if Jesus had wanted the church to look homogeneous, if Jesus had wanted the church to be uniform or identical, he would have chosen men and women who looked and thought alike. Instead, he chose a zealot and a tax collector, and he said, go work together in my kingdom. He chose a somewhat arrogant fisherman, and, a, and a, he chose a disciple who was going to have a special love. He said, go and work together. He chose the wife of a high court official, and he chose a woman who had demons that needed to be casted out. He chose a true Israelite in whom there was nothing false, and he chose a betrayer. He chose a woman who would be the first that he would appear to in his resurrection. And that woman would be the first to share a resurrection story. And you know what? It just so happened to be the demon-possessed woman. No, if Jesus really wanted a homogeneous church, he would have chosen radically differently. And so the question is not, how do we begin to look alike? How do we begin to think alike? How do we begin to, to have the same theology? That's not the question. The question becomes, how do we approach our differences? Here it is. With humility. And there it is. There's that ugly eight-letter word that surprisingly has appeared multiple times in sermons from different people who have stood here over the last six months in this church, humility, ugly word, ugly word. <laughs> what does it mean? What does it literally mean to approach people who think differently, who look different, who believe different things than we do? What does it look like to approach them with humility and with gentleness? What would the church look like? Do you think the church what do you think the church would look like if its focus was less on being right and more on being in relationship 
with the women and the men, the girls and the boys that God puts in front of us and beside us and around us. What would this church look like if we saw those people, whether they know it or not, at a subconscious level, hungering for a relationship with Creator God? You see, this idea of the need to be right, this, this idea of relationship over the need to be right is actually all through the Bible. We don't want to accept that, but it's all through the Bible of relationship over the need to be right. Just look at some of the examples. Joseph and Daniel served as high officials in an enemy's court. In an enemy's court. Boaz married a Moabite, of all things. He married a Moabite who would conceive and deliver the grandfather of David. David, in caring for his men, ate the bread that was completely, completely forbidden for him to eat and for his men to eat. Yet he ate the forbidden bread because he cared for his men. Esther married a pagan king and ended up saving a nation. But in reality... We need to look no further than Jesus. I just want to remind you of something. Tax collectors in, in the Hebrew times of Jesus, they were the worst of the worst. That's why they had their own category. That's why you read over 10 times in the gospel, sinners and tax collectors, or tax collectors and sinners, because they had their own category of, of sinfulness. And the second thing I want you to remember is that in the Hebrew culture, eating a meal was something of great intimacy and, in, and a great acceptance. And that's why so many of the stories that we see about Jesus are around the meal. And I want you to get that. Remember that. Because Jesus so often chose relationship over being right. He ate with tax collectors in their own homes. He chose relationship over being right. Jesus healed on the Sabbath many times. He chose relationship over being right. He allowed a woman of disrepute to touch him with her hands and her hair. He chose relationship over being right. And he allowed another woman to choose to break the rules and sit at his feet and listen to him instead of serving him and the other men that were with him with her sister. He chose relationship over being right. But most importantly, he chose the cross over a throne. He chose relationship over being right. So let me ask you, what if a young, unmarried couple with, say, a four-year-old child walked into our church? How would we greet them? That might be easy, but what if it was a gay couple that walked into our church? What if it was a person of color? 
What if it was a young man or a young woman who was heavily tatted and, and pierced? What if it was an agnostic? Or God forbid, what if it was a democratic Republican? <laughs> a democratic Republican. Can you imagine that? What if it was a politician? How would we respond? You see, I, I want to look at the scripture that Debbie read a few minutes ago and ask this question. What would the church look like, the church, if we lived out Matthew 5, 1 to 16? What would the church look like? Blessed are the peacemakers, the humble, the salt, and the light and look at the last verse of this text. Whom people observe and are drawn to Almighty God. Praise Almighty God. Wow, have you paused to think about that? They're not repelled by the church. They're drawn because of how people are behaving. They see your good deeds and respond in praise. What would the church look like if we lived out Matthew 5? Blessed are those who mourn and those who are poor in spirit. It's those who have become convinced of their own spiritual poverty and their utter need for God. Would this not lead us to more humility towards those who are different than us? Would this not cause us to put aside our need to be right and to seek relationships with those who are in desperate need of relationship with our God? Perhaps people would be drawn to the church rather than repelled, and that figure might begin to shift and change? You see, I want you to understand, nothing I have said this morning waters down the doctrinal principles, the doctrinal underpinnings of this church. Nothing I've said underscores that or, or dismisses that. What I've said is perhaps we don't need to be so defensive about them and to shun people who might think differently. Perhaps we need to begin to see people who think differently from us less as adversaries and more as brothers and sisters created in the image of God, seeking some sense of relationship in an ever-increasingly distant and violent world. You see, the table set before us in essence, requires us to be peacemakers, requires us to be poor in spirit, requires us to be humble and merciful, that we might be salt and light in this ever chaotic and changing world around us, from the Middle East and Ukraine to Waxhaw, Weddington, and our other neighborhoods. What would the church look like if we lived out Matthew 5? Let's pray. God in heaven.
So often we get stuck in believing that we have to convince people that we're right. God, may may we be reminded of the example of your son who so often chose relationship over the need to prove something right or wrong. God, may we be willing to embrace those who look different, who think differently. May we be willing to stretch ourselves out of our own comfort to those who are nearest to us, our families, our neighbors, and to those around the world. God, may we be peacemakers rather than warmongers. May we be people of humility rather than of arrogance. May we be people poor in spirit rather than believing we have all the answers. And in that, may people be drawn not only to the church, but to this church. For we pray this through Jesus. Amen.